Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning, and welcome to worship. I hope you got a bulletin as you came in. Uh, They're out there on the foyer. If you didn't get one, uh, please feel free. We're, we're not going to get upset if you stand up and go get one or ask someone to help you find one. Uh, all the readings and everything are in there so that you can be a part of the liturgy. You'll see the announcements on the back also that you can be a part of this week. I'll let you read through them. Um, but we do want to announce this morning that we still have the, the uh, adult class downstairs, uh, the bad guys, uh, what it means to live in a culture that we are today and still be Christian. Uh, we also have the kids classes. But if you're in the youth group or adults and you want to be a part of the church ministry class, we started last week. Uh, I spend half the class going over church structure and how we're formatted and the ministries that you're going to be able to be involved in. I'll slowly get to that, describe all the different opportunities that you have to serve. But then we also use the time for just questions. And so I appreciate last week the many of you who just had questions about church and how it works and what it's supposed to look like and how does that come together. And so I appreciate those of you who are asking. So we'll be meeting in here for the Sunday school class for those who are interested in being a part of that as well. But other than that, we have our session meeting this coming Tuesday, uh, Lord willing, and we'll have some further information for you about the upcoming picnic. I know some have already asked me, are we going to be outside? Are we going to do it right afterwards? Or, and folks, my, my escape question of that is, I don't know. We're going to let the session decide. So blame the elders when they meet, right? We'll let them help decide what we're going to do. But uh, we'll have that for you this coming week as we do plan at least to have the picnic and fellowship on that fifth Sunday for you to come and be a part of. Uh, but other than that, let me just say welcome again, and let me take us to the throne of grace in prayer, and then if you would join me in the Lord's Prayer as we go forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I am so thankful that we can come to worship, that we have the opportunity. Lord, with all that's going on, with an entire world that's living in fear, Lord, the one thing we realize is the only fear we should have is the fear of the Lord. And that you govern all things. And Lord, regardless of what is taking place, help us to be wise in our decisions. Help us to be faithful in our following. Lord, help us to trust in your providential care. Lord, help us to realize that all things are happening according to your will. So Lord, in the midst of all of this, we're glad that you call us here. We're glad that you've set aside a day that we could come, fellowship, and find ourselves drawn together at the throne of grace. It's here where we find our faith strengthened, nourished, where we find ourselves working with each other to overcome this hostile darkness and to be able to be a light in this world. Lord, we know that our sins need to be forgiven, our hearts need to be cleansed, our minds need to be cleared as well. Lord, I pray that here this morning as we worship, we'll set aside all those things that occupy our mind and Lord, we can set aside just a short time to be filled with your word, that your spirit would touch us, change us, and let us leave this place closer to you than when we came. Lord, all of this we ask, knowing that as we come together, it's not in our lengthy requests, but it's in the unity of the body, praying together as you taught us, saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever. Amen. If I can, let me call us to worship. It comes from Psalm 29. Nick helped put it together as we're worshiping this morning. Uh, let's remember Nick and Kirsten as they're away on vacation, but they're with us in spirit as they help plan and coordinate the service for us this morning for you to worship. But let me call us to worship from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. You'll just remain standing and join with me as we confess our faith together. We've been working through the shorter catechism this year. And so we are now at question 61 and 62. If, as you confess your faith, I'll read the question if you'll join with me together in reading the answer. What is forbidden in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment forbiddeth the omission or careless performance of the duties required and the profaning the day by idleness or doing that which is in itself sinful or by unnecessary thoughts, words, or worldly about our worldly employments or recreations. What are the reasons annexed to the fourth commandment? The reasons annexed to the fourth commandment are God's allowing us six days of the week for our own employments, His challenging a special propriety in the seventh, His own example, and His blessing the Sabbath day. It's amazing how it is that we have to stand up for our one true God as time goes on. He gives us this day to not only worship, but to set it aside to glorify Him and minister to his saints. If you would, join, would join together, together with, with me as we confess our sins, our sins together, together as we prepare our hearts, our hearts for the word. word. Pray, with, Pray me. with me. Merciful God, God you pardon all, all who truly repent, repent and turn, turn to, you. to you. We humbly confess our sins and ask your mercy. We have not loved you with a pure heart, nor have we loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not done justice, loved kindness, or walked humbly with you, our God. Have mercy on us, O God, in your loving kindness. In your great compassion, cleanse us from our sin. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and sustain us with your bountiful spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We find assurance of pardon again constantly throughout the scriptures as we're brought to God's word. Here John writes the simple truth we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is our prayer that as you leave this place, you can be assured of your salvation in him through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I hope you brought your Bibles. What a blessing. And thanks to our, our music ministry that helps lead us each week. And I know we miss 
Those of you who aren't up here, you don't realize you should be here, but I'm just telling you, you should be. And if you have a desire at all to want to help sing and lead or play instruments, uh, Sarah's organizing opportunities for practice ahead of time and a time to get together. And if you have that gift and want to be a part, it doesn't have to be every week. If you just want to come on the opportunities that you have, please let us know and we'll be glad to plug you in and let us help lead in worship together. First John has been taking us on a journey. I know it's a very short little letter, but it's got so much in it, it's hard to grasp really all that he has in one setting, even though you should take time to read it in one sitting. If you've never read it, it's only a few chapters, but it's packed full, if I can use these terms, of our obligations as authentic Christians to be a light to the world. We are challenged, and I know Brother Ken, in leading his class downstairs, what a wonderful topic in relationship. We are being challenged in a world to compromise in so many ways. And to stand up for the truth, you end up having to stand up and look like the bad guy. I don't know if you've caught it all, and I don't want to go into the political side of everything that's taking place on the news, but I told my wife this is the first time that I can remember in watching the Olympics as we catch up, that it seems like almost every person interviewed or every family that we're a part of or every person that is leading us is someone who has chosen to live an alternative lifestyle to that which has been the norm of our society. What you don't realize is that it's right there on national TV to be accepted around the world. It's not just what's happening in America, it's that this is happening around the world and America is the place you can come. And as people come, we find ourselves being the bad guys when we stand up for what is right. Well, here John's telling you to stand up and do what is right. It's not just in your mind that you're a Christian. It's not just in your heart that you feel you're a child of God. It is in your actions and following Jesus Christ that separates you from the rest of the world. So here's what John writes us at first. We have this word of life that has been manifested to us, we've learned. And we've learned about how important it is to walk in the light as he is in the light. And then he challenges us, as we learned last week, that we have an advocate with the Father when we sin. And we know we're going to sin, but that doesn't mean we should. We know that we're not going to be perfect until the time he comes, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And we know the truth is not going to be followed, but that doesn't have to apply to us. You're obligated to make a decision. Who is it that you're going to follow? The ways of the world or the one who gave his only begotten son to bring you life? You see, it changes every part of your life. It changes what you're going to read. It changes what you're going to watch. It changes what you're going to be a part of. It changes where you're going to work. It's going to change not only how you spend your money, but how you make your money. It's going to determine everything about your life on the days that you set aside or the days that you don't, on the activities that you think are appropriate and those that shouldn't be. You see, being a Christian involves being changed. John writes us in so many places, as we'll learn this morning, not just here, that to abide in Christ is a whole different life. 
I challenge you this morning, not that I'm out following you around, not that I'm trying to pick on any one of you, but I'm here to challenge you to say, is your life different? What separates you from the others? So John begins to pick up on this story after we have an advocate, almost as though he says, look, you're going to be a sinner. Don't worry. We have someone who's pled your case for you, someone who is standing at the right hand and pleading what it is on his works, not your own. But by the way, even though you have someone that can cover your sin, I don't want you to sin. I want you to follow in obedience what it is that's required of you. Bear with me this morning and let me just say this up front so that it doesn't get distorted. I do not believe in works righteousness. Let me explain. I do not believe that if you behave right, you can be saved. I do not believe that if you do good things, that you can merit yourself an opportunity to be right with God. What I do believe is that anyone whose heart has truly been changed and whose life has been reset and has become a new creation, why would you not want to obey the one who tells you to follow him? There's got to be something wrong if you call yourself a Christian and are not willing to change. That doesn't mesh. So here we find written by John in the first few verses of chapter 2, where he picks up this concept of how do we know we know. Now, I don't know what else to tell you this, folks, but the question we all have as Christians is, how do I know for sure, Pastor? If I had a dollar for every person that came to me over the past 30 years in the ministry and said, Pastor Jerry, I got a question for you. It doesn't take a lot. Let me just tell you something. I got some questions. How do you know God's listening to you? How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that this is what's going to happen? It's almost as though the pastor has a crystal ball and that I have a way to get in contact and say, well, this is how you know. Well, I don't, but John does. And he says that within the word, in a relationship that's proper, you can rest assured that God loves you, that you have a relationship with him, and that things are going to work out just fine if you follow his word and obey his commands. So listen to what John is beginning to write us. The, the assurance that we need in the Christian life goes back to the understanding of what we started. Are you wanting to live an authentic Christian life, or are you just wanting to fit in with church people? Big difference. Are you wanting an authentic Christian life, let me paraphrase. Or do you want to live a lie? You see, those are the choices that he gives us. Doubt is always around the corner for all of us. We go through circumstances and situations in our life in which we're constantly facing this thing called doubt. If you, if you don't understand that, go to Romans 14, read the chapter. Paul writes us and he says this, anything done in doubt is done in sin. Isn't that amazing? Anything that is done in doubt is done in sin. In other words, there is confidence in Christ. And we are more than conquerors that are in Christ. But if you're not sure about something, then don't go forward. Let your conscience be the guide until you find in the word what it is he wants for you. 
You're questioning your relationship, maybe like John. Well, how do I know God's really there for me? How do I know he's going to answer my prayers? How come my life hasn't really changed? Why don't I feel different today than before? Why am I still struggling with the same things as I did before? Oh, I could put this on the spot this morning. Please forgive me ahead of time. I don't want you to be angry. But how many of you know someone who claims to be a Christian, but their actions do not demonstrate they follow Jesus Christ? Are you going to be the bad guy? Are you going to be the one that says this cannot be? We could fall into the trap, if you wish, of many who have said, yeah, but God knows the heart. That is true. But a changed heart is a changed life, and a changed life has changed actions. Oh, let's listen to what John writes us so that we too can overcome doubt. How do you know you know? This is what John writes. And by this, verse 3, chapter 2, we know... Gnosko is the Greek word that is used there. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. Well, I could summarize the sermon this morning and we could get done early and go to class and get out early today by just simply asking you, how many of you are walking like Jesus walked? That's what we're asked to do. I want to go through some things here this morning. How is it that we know? John's trying to give us the assurance of a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Write these down. How do I know that I know? I remember when my daughter first asked me one time, Dad, how do you know if you know it's right? And I thought to myself, you'll know when you know. Man, that's confusing, isn't it? John's using the same term over and over in different ways. You may know that you know him. Man, that's confusing. If I don't know, then how do I know I know? If I know I don't know, then I don't really know that I know I know. And the truth of it is, I'm ready to just go. Here's what John says. There's three things that I'm going to share with you this morning that matters. He writes in this short little section three things. How do I know I'm living an authentic Christian life? There are more things than just this. Many writers will tell you. They'll explain it. But this is a section called the moral test. Many have written about this. You'll see later on that there's a doctrinal test and a social test when it comes to love. But in this section, we're dealing with a moral test. Here's the three things I want to talk to you about this morning. First of all, you're authentically Christian when your relationship is personal. You can write that down. Second of all, when your knowledge is practical. And finally, when your love of God is perfected. This is what John writes to us here. First of all, you know you're living an authentic Christian life when you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not just 
the word of knowledge. Listen to what he says. And by this we know, ginosko, and that can be interpreted this way, again, not to bore you, whether it's an accumulation of facts or whether it's about an understanding of someone's actions in the lives of others, we simply know. You can have an understanding of facts without knowing a person at all. You can gather information about a subject without truly understanding how it works. If you don't know what I'm talking about, for those of you who live off of YouTube videos today, it's because you can do everything you want for yourself. All you do is get on YouTube, find the video, watch how it's done, and you can perform the work. Ask any good mechanic. That's probably not the safest thing to do with big jobs. You can be a medical person if you want. You go on YouTube and they'll tell you stories. Well, if you've got this kind of a rash, and it'll show you a picture of a thousand rashes. And you have to discern which rash you have. And if you have this rash, go to page three. And if you go to page three, we'll take a picture of it and let us see what it is. Folks, it's probably not the best thing. You can act like a nurse and do the things a nurse would do. That doesn't make you a nurse. You could go to YouTube today, and what does it mean to be a Christian? These are the steps that you got to follow. This is what it should look like, and this is how your family should be structured, and these are how your devotions should work. Oh, I guess I'm a Christian. Oh, you can abide by all the facts, and just because you're doing what other Christians do doesn't make you a what? A Christian. You see, John's writing about, do we truly know? We have come to know him. That's the word that's now saying it's relational. We know we know him, and he's going to go later on. We can't do it all this morning, about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That personal relationship is about an intimate, loving relationship that God has designed for you. It's about having a relationship of understanding what it is you can work through. You see, you can look up ways to be a mechanic but if you're a mechanic, you'll figure out ways to fix things. That's the difference. You can always look up ways to try to act like a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you will figure out the ways to act, to do what's right. You see, the relationship what has to be real. It's not intellectual. Back before the time in which Paul, John was writing, we had the understanding of those who were the sophists, if you wish, or the Gnostics, those who loved knowledge for the sake of knowledge. How many of you are like that? Oh, come on. Yeah. If you love to read, just to read. Now, it's one thing if you love a subject, but I have met those people, and I call them history majors. If you're here this morning and you're a history major in college, I want you to stand up and be bold and honest. <laughs> because why else do you go to college to study history than to prove to everybody else you know everything? Because that's what history majors do. They just know it all. They got facts. They've got a, a, this intellectual emptiness that needs to be filled. And they just want to learn about everything. And they want to know how everything is. And sometimes it's frustrating because when you talk to those people, you feel like, well, you just think you know it all, don't you? And then when you go home, you get, they, they, they knew it all. They really did. They, it's amazing. Well, that's not what John is writing. He said, that doesn't satisfy Intellectual knowledge will not satisfy your emptiness. Intellectual knowledge will not help you overcome your sinfulness. Intellectual knowledge will leave you at a place in life where you are left barren and alone and in need. Because to know Christ is not the knowledge of gaining facts. 
It's the understanding of a relationship that changes you. So here this morning, the intellectuals fell short. And though their love for wisdom was all about the things that filled the emptiness, it didn't change them one bit. There's nothing more frustrating over the last 25 years than for parents to spend the fortunes it takes to send your kids to college. For them to graduate college, to come home and say, I guess it's time to figure out what I want to be. Well, why did you go to college? What did you do with all that knowledge? Weren't you there to decide what it is God wanted? You see, we live in a world where sometimes we go just to go, and intellectual ability doesn't change us. It fills us, but it doesn't give us what we need. John writes, and he says, that's not going to help you. He goes to the other extreme, and he says there are those that are nothing but experiential and emotional. How many of you are emotional? That's more of a characteristic than what you understand. How many of you cry every time someone shares a story with you? Yeah, how many of you... How many of you cry at the same movie, at the same place, every time you watch it? See, emotional experiences don't change you either. You even know what's coming. You know how it's going to end. You know how it's going to work out, and you still cry about it. Do you see, that doesn't fill the void that's actually there. It takes you through an experience that makes you feel better. Sometimes our worship turns into emotional experiences. Sometimes we even have entire denominations that are built around the concept of a spiritual moving service where you can be emotionally filled. And what a great experience it is. I'm not here to knock that, but let me ask you this. Have you ever been in one of those experiences where you ask yourself, what just happened? Because sometimes the emotional experience that feels so great in your life has no understanding with it at all, makes no sense in why it is happening. And so you go through an experience and then you ask yourself, well, what was that? What did I get out of that? Was I supposed to change? And so then you look for more and more. I say this gently. I don't mean to pick on any church, but where we have just come from, we have several churches, large churches that have been through some very hard times. And one of them lost an entire worship center and choir programs, hundreds of people united together at a place. And when I sat down with one of them, who was an elder, who was also serving on the board with me at the school, I said, what is it that took place? Why did so many happen? He said, well, Jerry, we hung in as long as we could until this phrase, and I know you've heard it because it's happened more than one time, is he said this, when we started doing things in worship, to enhance the moving of the spirit so that people could feel blessed, it was time to go. Because what do we as individuals have that can enhance the work of the Holy Spirit? I want you to think about this. I'm not saying don't get excited. When the preacher says something good, you can say amen. But what I don't want you to do is if you start getting up and jumping pews and running aisles, we do have a watch team. <laughs> that's right. That's what that's for. Folks, I'm not against that. And I know it sounds like we're mocking, and I don't mean it that way, because I truly believe some have truly emotional experiences. And there are days that I can honestly tell you that when someone speaks the word of God and it pierces my soul, I get goosebumps. 
And I think to myself, man, are they talking to me? Did they realize what they just said? I mean, do they know what I just went through? And that experience is so real. But you know what? It only meant something because it was tied to the word, to the truth, to what was the need. You see, we're either living in the world where people want to talk about things that don't matter, the sophists. They ask those questions like this. Well, if a tree fell in the woods and nobody was around to hear it, did it really make a sound? And you'll spend hours like, who cares? And then there's those, well, can God create a rock so big he couldn't lift it? Yeah, I wish he'd throw it on you. You know, and just, it's those discussion questions that you say to yourself, why are we doing this? Then there's those that every time you go to talk, it's nothing but crying. Well, let me tell you this, folks. I've grown up in a home with all kinds of emotion. Women, when you cry, I'll be patient. But I'm not going to let your crying decide what's going to happen. Men, you can use whatever tone of voice you want. And I'll listen. But just because you get louder doesn't mean you get what you want. You see, we live in a world of emotion where we think we can use emotion to accomplish what it is we want. John's writing this, all this in a letter that says, wait a minute, we can know that we know him, not by intellectualism and not by emotionalism, but by the personal relationship you have with Jesus Christ. It'd be a little weird if I went up to my wife one day and said, hey, Stacy, do you realize we're married? Sounds like a crazy question to me. Then wait a minute. Now, other people may ask me, hey, Jerry, are you married? Well, sure I am. I think I am. I don't know. After this morning, I don't know if I still will be. But, I mean, I am now. Folks, it's the relationship that exists that allows you to go forward and talk with others. It's not the things that are happening that determine whether I'm married. Things go up and down all the time. And here's what John simply writes. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Go back to the Old Testament because the commandments we're talking about are not just the laws. But listen to the very beginning, even when Moses is writing us in Deuteronomy. He gives us into chapter 10, and he writes several things that I want to read to you. Beginning in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to what? And to love him. And to serve the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul. The Ten Commandments were not given for a list of rules. I could go into days and days on a class and I'd be glad to take you through it on what the law and the commandments really existed. A picture of God's holiness. It was the duty of what it requires. It's a relationship that can be fulfilled. There's so many things in the Ten Commandments. It's a picture of God's expectation. But you don't become right with God by doing those things. You become right with God because when a heart has been changed, those things come naturally. John writes this morning and he says, how do I know I know? It's because I have a personal relationship with God through Christ. How do I know he speaks to me through his word? He shows me answered prayers. He comforts me when I'm in need. He leads me when I feel lost. 
You see, these are all the things that go together. Verse 30 says the same thing at the end of the chapter when Moses is writing. Are they not beyond all this Jordan west toward the going down of the sun and the Canaanites who live in all these places opposite the oak of Mori, if you wish to say all this? He goes on and on and on to tell us about things. And at the end of the chapter, these same places where they went to go live and to follow Christ. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let me read for just a moment when he says this. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offering, offspring I'm sorry, may live. How many of you this morning have chosen life? personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you see, he's taken us on this journey that is not just about a personal relationship. Jeremiah 31, you know the new covenant. I give you these things and I write them on your heart that you might be my people and I will be your God. Yes, it results in the forgiveness that God gives us. Yes, it results in our obeying of what his laws are, but it's all based on the understanding that he is my God. And I am his child. This morning, I want to challenge you. If you're having doubts about your relationship, maybe you want to ask yourself, has it ever been personal? Or has your life with Christ always been academic, intellectual, and emotional? Until it becomes personal, you're going to have doubts about not only today, but about tomorrow. What is it that I know will happen? Gnosko. It's the relationship of gathering these things together into a relationship that lasts forever. It's not just a relationship that's personal. It's a knowledge that's practical. We just went through the whole idea of understanding what the commands are. Let me give you a, a bit of advice here when he says this. And we know that we've, not come, to, we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The word entole here, if you wish, the Greek word that is used for commandments is used multiple, multiple times throughout the scriptures. And you know that all but two times in which Jesus uses it, it's tied to loving one another? That when you talk about keeping the commands and Christ talks about keeping his commands, it's tied to this understanding of loving one another. There's this action tied to what knowledge really is. So not only do we need a relationship that's personal, we need a knowledge that's practical. It can be used. It can be put into use. It can make a difference. Tarao is the word that it says, keep these commandments. You may not understand this, but it is a word that means to maintain and guard. You see, you're not saying I have to establish a relationship. What he's saying is that we know we have this relationship when we're guarding the truths of loving one another as God loved us. You see, when we guard the relationship, it's a sign that the relationship is real. Do you have any relationships that are real? Do you not guard them, protect them, and oversee them? When John writes to us, Terao, to keep the commandments, to guard and protect the actions that show we love one another. Jerry's version. That's what it's saying. How do I know 
that I know God is because I have a personal relationship with him. And my life now exists around me keeping and protecting the love that we have for one another. Maybe in your life this morning you're saying, Pastor, I'm having a hard time with that love. I'm bitter. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. I need a relationship that's changing me. How do I know that what I know up here is practical? When does it become real? It's all about personality changes. Did you realize that? Do you realize it really is a personality issue when you become a Christian? Because your personality changes. You know, in real life, if I can go back just a little bit, we could pick on wherever you are. When you meet a person in your life that may eventually change you, we could go back and say things like this. Hey, I met this person whose personality is amazing. And the more you get to know that person, what happens to your personality? That person's personality changes your personality. And now that your personality has changed, what happens to your behavior? It changes. If I could use just a simple dating understanding, because the Bible's full of the relationships of marriage and man and women together, it would say something like this. You know when a boy meets a girl and he really likes her because his life what? Changes. Oh, she's really put a change in his step. Oh, his personality has become different. And now he's wanting to do the things that I always asked him to do and he would never do. But now she asks him to do them and what happens? And they get done. Moral of the story, everybody needs somebody else, right? It is if you need Jesus. You see, the exact same thing is what John is writing to us. Is he says, when a person comes in contact with Jesus, his personality is attractive and changes us. And that personality is what we want to have in our lives. And so our personality changes. And so this person that has now become part of us has now changed our actions and behavior. And what you tried to get me to do your whole life, you could never get done. But the moment Jesus touched me, I'm now doing those things without an argument. Because God changes people. And maybe this morning you need to realize, I need to be changed. I want that personal relationship. I want to have a knowledge that changes things. It's practical. Philippians 2.13, it's this relationship of personality change. When he says this, whoever says to him that I do know him, but I do not keep his commandments, he is a what? Those aren't my words. I am not here trying to get you to do what Jerry wants you to do. I'm here to put before you that you can either live an authentic Christian life where your actions match the actions of Jesus Christ or you're a liar and the truth is not in you. I can tell you whether or not you know because if your life doesn't look like Jesus, there's probably... A problem. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. Philippians 2.13 is that God is always at work in us. We know that. We understand through 2 Corinthians 13.5 that we're to test ourselves to see whether or not the truth is in us, that Jesus is in us. 
unless, of course, we fail the test, is what it says. And we know that Colossians 3 tells us that we've got this new man where the old is gone, the new has come. We've got to put on the new man. Do you see all of Scripture, not just John, begins to talk about this union with Christ. That true knowledge that is not just emotional or intellectual becomes practical. It changes us. You learn things in order to become better with things. A relationship needs to be personal. Your knowledge needs to be practical. John chapter 14, not the same writer who writes all these. Listen to what John writes in his gospel in chapter 14. I'll read some of these. Verse 15 of John chapter 14 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If you look at verse 21 of the same chapter, as he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 21 says this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we'll come to him and make our home with him. I love how he uses the word, if anyone keeps my word, in verse 23. Because look what happens right here in chapter 2, verse 5. Whoever keeps his what? Word. Isn't it amazing that the commandments that John uses, not just here but in the gospel, is interchangeable with the word? Because we're not talking about Ten Commandments. We're talking about the entire teaching of God's Word. Your life ought to look like the Scriptures, not the Ten Commandments. Your life ought to look like the commandment that Christ gives us. To love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love your what? Neighbor as yourself. You see, that's what happens when knowledge becomes practical. It begins to change everything around you. Pastor, how do I know I'm saved? Well, it's because you have a relationship that's personal. You have a knowledge that is practical. And finally, your love for God is being perfected. It's being completed. That's the word that is used. Whoever keeps his word, verse 5, in him truly the love of God is Perfected. Now, for those of you who want your scholarly dose that comes through here, there's a debate that rages right now and has for centuries on what does the love of God mean. If you understand how Greek is written, there's the nominative case, there's the genitive ablative case, there's the locative instrumental and dative case, and then you have the accusative case. So when you get to all of your prepositional phrases, you have to decide which case does it fit in. Well, the love of God is a genitive case. So you think, well, that makes it easy. It's just the love of God because it's in the genitive case. The problem with that is that it could be the love of God, the love for God, or the love like God. So the scholars are now asking ourselves, what does it mean that the love of God is perfected? Does it mean that God's love for us, the objective genitive, so that now we understand that we know we're saved because God's love for us is perfected? Is it the love of God or for God? Where he becomes the object and we're the subject, so it's the subjective genitive. For those of you who love keeping up with all of this, 
Or is it the comparative genitive, where now we're saying it's just a love like God's? Most people would say it's this subjective genitive or objective side, where what you're really saying is, if I'm truly a child of God, then the love of God is being perfected in me. And over time, I'm going to look just like who? Jesus. You see, this love that he's saying is being perfected in our lives, just like Jesus lived, is what he says. We ought to walk the same way he walked. And if Jesus walked obeying the commands of the Father, then we ought to walk obeying the commands of Jesus. Please do not hear me say again that we're being saved by works. That is not the case. I would say with Ephesians, we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift from God so that no one can what? But folks, just because you're saved by grace as a free gift doesn't mean God doesn't expect you now to be different. Remember, holiness is part of the issue. Sanctification and being set apart. 2 Corinthians 3.18 makes it very clear that we too are in the process of being formed into the image of Jesus Christ. How do I know, Pastor Jerry? Well, I'll tell you how you know. Do you look more like Christ today than you did before? If there's no difference, if there's no change, then there's probably doubt that what you have is real. And if there's doubt that what you have is real, you're probably wondering whether or not you're living a lie. John says you don't have to wonder. You can know. If your relationship is personal, your knowledge is practical, and this love is being perfected, John 15 says this, if you abide in me, you'll bear what? Much fruit. There is a result that comes about in a moment, in a matter of time. It is only a matter of time in which there has to be something that quantifies who it is that we belong to and where it is we live. I've used the analogy many times before, and I don't want to belabor it, too much, but if someone came to me, if my wife came to me and said, Jerry, I'm going to have another baby, I would fall over. She hasn't, and we're not, but if she did, I could expect at some moment in time that there would be a what? A child. If four months from now, my wife says, oh, for Christmas, Jerry, I'm going to give you a little baby boy. And if at Christmas time, she says, well, I've decided I'm not going to give you the child until Easter. And Easter were to come around and say, we know I didn't want it to interfere with our summer plans. And so I thought it could be a fall festival type event. Folks, eventually I would have to say to my wife, You're lying. You don't have a baby. Because if there was one, in a matter of time, all going well, there's going to have to be proof that there is. You can't claim to say you're going to have a baby and never have a baby. Now, I know there's exceptions. You could say as a Christian, if you claim to have the Holy Spirit, 
It's only a matter of time until that Holy Spirit has to come out. It's only a matter of time until that Holy Spirit is going to become evident. Now, that's not nine or ten months. It could be nine or ten years. It could be 90 or 100. Yes, I understand God works differently. But in the normal instance, under normal circumstances, God's word produces an effect. If you are a Christian, the word here that is being perfected, tantelios, the same word that is used for the gospel when the perfect has come is translated completed or finished many other times. How do I know I know? Because the love of God will be completed. It will be finished. It will become evident in your life. Oh, what does John write to us? Man, I have all these doubts, but obedience is non-negotiable. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but that faith results in a relationship that's personal, a knowledge that is practical, and a love that is being perfected. Holiness and righteousness, they're not the basis of salvation but they're the evidence of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that John would be so specific to us, that he would be so pointed, that he would put us on the spot. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would change us, that we would not be ashamed to confess you, Father, as the same scriptures tell us that if we're ashamed of you before men, that you'll be ashamed of us before your Father in heaven. Father, help us not to live a lie. Help us to realize the difference that you make. And Lord, when we doubt, help us to find the truth of the word, that our personal relationship is there. That the knowledge that we have received is very practical and it changes us. It changes our actions. And Lord, in a matter of time, one day when you return, our love will be completed. And we will be what you want us to be. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're staying for Sunday school, we invite you to go downstairs for all the classes. If you're here for the pastor's ministry class, we'll be upstairs here in about 20 minutes. But if you would, receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you, keep you, and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his countenance toward you and give you peace. And all God's children said, amen. amen. Have a great Lord's Day.